0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised.
1: Alexander Vindman, who handled the Ukraine portfolio for the National Security Council, has since said that he thinks that Trump's manipulation of aid to Ukraine is what set the stage for the Russian invasion of Ukraine this year.
0: Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. (laughs) Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast,
2: we're joined by former CIA officer and investigative journalist Frank Snap. Frank recently published a very detailed article titled Putin's Plan B for Ukraine, which delves into two murky peace plans connected to Russian intelligence and associates of former President Donald Trump. This is a very detailed episode where I take a back seat and let Frank explain what he has found. In the last section of the podcast, we look at the situation today and discuss how the war in Ukraine could end. So, pour yourself your favorite drink, sit back and enjoy. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel I've been threatening it for a while, and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On there are video versions of the podcast, so if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast. Apple reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below thank
0: you so much for your support and without further ado let's get going the opinions expressed by guests on secrets and spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast
2: Frank, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Glad to be here in a very timely moment uh, for people interested in intelligence and spies.
2: Yes, yes, actually, it's uh, quite a good time for all that, unfortunately, in some respects, but but there we go. Um, For the benefit of listeners who may not have caught our previous episodes, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, I I served in the CIA... uh, during the Vietnam years. I was the senior analyst in Saigon mm. during the last years of the war. And um, I later became a journalist, an investigative journalist, specializing in national security issues. And uh, I keep my eye on things like uh, Afghanistan and Ukraine Often from the perspective of Vietnam and my experiences in Vietnam as an intelligence officer, I'm essentially still an intelligence analyst, and that's the way I approached the subject at hand, what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, coming at it really from a Vietnam perspective, and I will just drop this in at the beginning, uh, one of the things that intrigues me about what's developing in Ukraine, right now, is the shift in military operations to the east and the evident effort by Putin and Russian forces to establish an enclave along the eastern border of Ukraine. This reminded me of something that happened in Vietnam for the same reason during the ceasefire period from 1973 to 75. And that was the communist decided to set up what they call a third Vietnam along the western border of South Vietnam. They had set up a provisional revolutionary government which was to govern this third Vietnam, and all it was about was strengthening their negotiating hand, establishing an enclave which they could use as a force multiplier in negotiations. They had a puppet government set up that they could use in their negotiations to tipped the balance in their favor. And essentially, as I remembered all of this, uh, I, I thought, wow, what Putin is doing in eastern Ukraine now, the shifting of his military operations in that direction, looks a lot like the same thing that communists were doing in Vietnam with their so-called enclave in Third Vietnam. So that's what really led me into into this subject and I approach it. I want to caution your listeners. I'm not an expert on Ukraine, but uh, I do bring a certain sensitivity to intelligence issues because of my experience. And I think it served me well in sort of examining uh, the evolving situation in eastern Ukraine. And also I think we'll eventually look forward and see whether or not what's happening in eastern Ukraine could give us a blueprint for a, an off-ramp, a way of getting out of this, this war that might certainly be acceptable to Putin and possibly to Zelensky, uh, the president of Ukraine, under certain circumstances with modifications. Apologies for that long opening, but I wanted to sort of bring everything back to my Vietnam experience and why I got interested.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, were you surprised by the Russian invasion of Ukraine?
1: I wasn't surprised by the Russian uh, effort to uh, tightened its grip mm. on Ukraine. After all, we had some uh, very stark forewarnings. There was the Russian incursion into Georgia in 2008. There was, of course, Putin's seizure of Crimea in 2014 after his puppet in Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, fell and was ousted by a Western-leaning uh, popular uprising. So there was certain precedent for Putin going into Ukraine, I think U.S. intelligence brilliantly forecast uh, the military effort that he initially undertook, which was to grab the country. Um, I think that U.S. intelligence misunderstood just how weak Putin's army was, because U.S. intelligence, really beginning in Vietnam, has never been very good at at discerning the impact of corruption on a fighting force's capabilities. Uh, U- 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 U.S. intelligence, often guided by numbers, tends to count heads and uh, deduce that a certain adversary can take certain actions because it has this much manpower in the field or on call. It has this much hardware. It turns out that Putin's army was corrupt. Mm. That uh, the way Putin had governed Russia, giving basically power to the oligarchs, and they became his, uh, uh, you know, military-industrial complex, as it were, he opened the door to corruption within the military. And a lot of things were done for the Russian military, or were said to have been done, to improve it, that weren't, because the oligarchs and the people who control the money flow we pocketing that. So I think U.S. intelligence misunderstood the fragility of the Russian uh, army and assumed that it would immediately overrun Ukraine. I think that was the initial betting. And Biden and his intelligence people, Averill Haynes, who's the director of national intelligence, they manage the intelligence output, or I should say the publication of intelligence, brilliantly to let Putin know that we knew what he was doing, to create paranoia on his part. Uh, he was looking around for moles within his entourage. If he believes he's being anticipated, he obviously thinks somebody's leaking his mm, secrets. Mm, mm. And so all of that was done brilliantly. And um, so I think that that sort of the initial stage of the invasion was handled well and not so well by U.S. intelligence. Uh, they handled the intelligence terrifically as a psi weapon once the operation got underway. They failed to anticipate how quickly uh, the, the Russian army would run into itself once it got into the field. And let it also be said, I think that they, and this is an intangible that U.S. intelligence is always uh, at, at uh, hard-pressed to examine and, to assess the impact of morale. And I'm talking about the morale within Ukraine itself and the power of one person, Zelensky himself, in shaping events. It's not popular these days to speak of history in terms of the singular man, the guy like Churchill who turned the battle for Britain around and so on. But boy, I tell you, Zelensky proves that that theory is still alive and well because almost single-handedly, I don't have to tell you, Because British intelligence, by the way, has been fantastic in analyzing what's going on in Ukraine, particularly within uh, the Putin entourage. But morale, one man galvanizing this morale, President Zelensky, there was no way anybody could predict that. Okay, coming back around to your original question, Chris, you asked me, was I surprised? I I was not surprised when Putin decided, after failing to take Kiev in um, late February he began to telegraph that he was going to shift his strategy and shift operations to the east to concentrate on basically creating a crescent hmm. of occupied territory, starting with Kharkiv in the north, in fact even Cheve, if you go further north, and it 's sort of curving around in a crescent through. Uh, Donbass, which was the region of Ukraine, which has always been problematic for the Ukrainian government because it is a a seat of Russian-speaking population. It is uh, an area that was subject to separatist movements from 2014. Luhansk and Donetsk have essentially proclaimed themselves independent republics. So you go down through Donbass into Say Mariupol, which is now under Russian control, and you—you you, this crescent, this enclave that I'm talking about, this border satrap trap, extends all the way down now, uh, almost to the Crimean Peninsula, and the Crimean Peninsula, of course, is controlled by Putin. So, effectively. What was going to happen and has happened is that Putin has established through basically concentrated military effort rather than broad-based initiatives, but now concentrating on individual targets. The most recent is uh, shievro uh, Donetsk in Luhansk. He, he's taking bits and pieces of this territory, putting them under his control, and I think the plan is to create this, this continuous continuous enclave of occupied territory from, say, Kharkiv down to Crimean Peninsula. And that would be his third Vietnam. That would be the second Ukraine. And the concept, by the way, is a throwback to a concept that the czars embraced, which was New Russia, Novo Russia. It was uh, using that eastern area where uh, where the operations are concentrating now to turn that into sort of a... again, a sort of autonomous region subject to Russian control, czarist control. And it it was designed, it was set up in order to bring various ethnic groups together and pointed in one direction. Well, that's exactly what Putin is up to now. So what he's doing was anticipated by history. It certainly was foreshadowed by something that happened in Vietnam. And so it was somehow predictable. What happens next is a good guess, Uh, and um, it is my theory as I wrote recently in the article which prompted our discussion. I think it's very possible that uh, the eastern satrap or crescent or enclave that Putin is trying to set up will eventually be the focus of of a negotiating initiative. Once uh, that area is consolidated or put under Russian control, It may be presented as an autonomous region. There will be a puppet government set up there, probably with somebody like uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who was deposed in 2014 as the president of Ukraine, now lives in Russia, is a complete Russian puppet, has been, in fact, rooted as a possible candidate to replace Zelensky if the Russian took over, Russians took over Ukraine. So on and on. But in any case, I think that this Eastern enclave could become a real factor in the effort by international mediators and possibly, eventually, by Ukraine and by Russia, looking towards an off-ramp to bring this war to a close before it becomes a forever war. Big problem with Zelensky, of course, he's not going to want to agree to anything that cedes territory to um, to Putin to, to reward him for his aggression. But I think if if it were approached. Properly and carefully, uh, Zelensky might be able to tolerate a uh, an autonomous region not under ostensible Russian control in this eastern area. Mm-hmm. So for your viewers who are already getting bleary-eyed, what this finally means, I think, is that uh, what's happening in eastern Ukraine and the military, concentration of military activity there could very well serve as a, a platform for some kind of negotiated discussions in the future.
2: Yeah, yeah. And um, so you mentioned it before, you've written this brilliant article called Putin's Plan B for Ukraine, and you discussed the strategy that Putin's using. So... um, He has these potential, um, there are these sort of two peace proposals that you mentioned in this article that Putin could use as a roadmap for his plans to sort of end this war. So can you talk to us a bit about these, what you call, faux peace proposals and also how Russian intelligence has used associates of former President Donald Trump to give them legitimacy in the U.S.?
1: What I was looking at in this article are two things. Mm. Um, One, how Russian intelligence has helped put together peace plans that point towards what's exactly happening in Eastern Ukraine now. And the second thing that interested me was uh, how these peace plans, which were generated during the Trump era, uh, right before and after the 2016 election, and generated with Russian help, pro-Russian Ukrainians working with Trump insiders to put this together. So for your listeners, Very simply put, what we're talking about today originated during the Trump era. Trump's fingerprints are all over what we're discussing today. Mm. And at the same time, we must remember from the outset that Russian operatives worked with Trump insiders to put these plans together. And ultimately, and we'll come back to this, but ultimately, The plans we're talking about go to one of the great unanswered questions of the Trump-Russia scandal. Was there collusion between Trump insiders and Russian operatives to swing the 2016 election? And the great question that was examined by Robert Mueller and by Senate intelligence investigators in the United States was whether or not there was a quid pro quo, whether or not Trump promised or indicated that he would deliver something to Putin to repay Putin for basically screwing over Hillary Clinton's campaign with his his dirty leaks efforts and by his cyber intrusions into Democratic computers. Was there a quid pro quo? Well, friends, it turns out Ukraine was the quid pro quo. The one thing Putin has wanted from time immemorial, good God, we go back to the entire concept of Russian empire, Ukraine has already been part of it. And Putin deeply resented the westward shift in the Ukrainian political scene prior to the, the Trump election, uh, really with the ouster of Viktor Yanukovych in 2014. Uh, and certainly he despised Zelensky and, and everyone in Ukraine who wanted to look westward. He yeah. wanted to look to NATO. He wanted to look to the European Union. So he wanted to stop this drift. And, and Trump's people, and I'm going to talk about the two people who knew it most about this, but his people and people who were in touch with Russian intelligence knew that Ukraine was the gold standard for, for Putin. He wanted that. And so if you're looking, if you're a Trumpite and you're looking for something to give Putin in repayment for his help with the election, mm. it's Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And we're going well, to, I think I've demonstrated in my piece, and I hope we can get across to your listeners, that that's what happened. And what we're talking about today was the quid pro quo. It was deli- It was a gift that Putin wanted and that Trump meant to give him while he was still in office. And I think that will become clear in our discussion. Okay, let's talk about the first peace plan that evolved during the Trump era and that uh, helped shaped uh, the notion that there could be a backdoor uh, scheme to bring peace to Ukraine. Okay, the first plan I like to call the Michael Cohen plan. Michael Cohen, as everybody who's followed Trump-Russia scandal knows, was Trump's personal lawyer. He was involved in setting up uh, the Moscow Tower, uh, Trump Tower of Moscow project. He worked with Felix Sater, another uh, Trump insider, to do that. And he became quite famous for turning against Trump and so forth. But in the early days, Cohen worked to deliver something to, to Trump that involved Ukraine. And it was, I call the Cohen Peace Plan. Okay, what happened was this. In 2016, as the campaign, the election airing, was coming to an end, people who looked at Trump as a real viable candidate, some of them, including his own followers, thought that this is a time to help mobilize and concentrate Russian support for him. And what happened was that there was a... There was a pro-Putin politician in Ukraine named Andrei Artemenko, and he went to Putin by his own account, got permission to go to Cohen, Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, and he did so through Felix Sater, another Trump associate, and they put together a peace plan for Ukraine that Trump could participate in if he became president. Well... The plan began to surface during the transition period after Trump was elected, and it came front and center and became very, very public right after Trump's inauguration. And this is what the plan amounted to. Remember, it originates with Artemenko, a pro-Putin Ukrainian, on, he says, orders from Putin's own insiders. What it envisions is this. The details aren't important, but it's just useful to focus on Mm, them. mm. They're not important because they clearly were, were political negotiating starting points. But number one, the plan envisioned the lifting of sanctions against Russia for its seizure of Crimea, something that Putin very much wanted. So the peace plan had that as an element. Secondly, it envisioned a Putin-endorsed ceasefire in the eastern separatist region. Again, for your listeners, what's happened is that separatist elements in Donbass had basically wanted to side with Putin ever since uh, Yanukovych was overthrown in 2014 and this westward shift in Ukrainian politics became evident. no these separatists over in Donbass Russian speakers they wanted to side with with Putin and Russia, and so they began fighting government forces and Putin fed that uh, fed that activity. so what this peace plan envisioned that Michael Cohen and Artemenko put together was bringing about a ceasefire in that area, okay, that, that Putin would endorse. Now, friends, remember, this is a plan that Putin's put forward that he certainly knows about. His representatives, his Ukrainian allies, are putting forward. So this is a plan. We, listen to this. This is what Putin would accept, okay? So a ceasefire in the Donbass region. And finally, the plan envisioned a nationwide referendum on whether or not, and this gets really hinky, whether or not to return Crimea, which is already in Putin's pocket, he's already seized it, but to put Crimea in play and to a, a referendum on the part of the Ukrainian people, whether or not to re, to lease Crimea to Russia. Why Why is that little strange? If it's already in Russian hands, why in the world would anyone want to lease Crimea to Russia, because that wouldn't remove the rationale for sanctions. You see, the sanctions were levied because Putin had seized Crimea. If you pretend to lease it to him, Mm, mm. gone is the rationale for sanctions, and everybody's happy. Gone are the sanctions. There's a ceasefire in Donbass, over and out. That essentially was the Cohen peace plan. Yeah, it was... It was actually surfaced in the New York Times right after the election. And strangely enough, later, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Mueller investigators really never looked into it. But it's a very important milestone because it tells us that from the very start, Putin and his operatives were looking at ways of getting at Ukraine and what they wanted there through political means through political means. And what happened to this plan is is really fun. Basically, it shames a clown car because it was handled so badly. Uh, Artemenko shows up. This guy, Artemenko, he's the Ukrainian sponsor of the plan. He pictures himself as a... uh, as a Ukrainian or a Slavic Trump. His wife did modeling gigs with uh, Melania Trump in Eastern Europe. So he's able to tell his friends, I know Trump and we're good friends and I can make this work. Um, He gets to meet Cohen through Felix Sater. Felix Sater is one of the strangest Trump supporters we could point to, and there are certainly a number of them. But Felix Sater... Uh, was uh, did some time in prison for smashing a glass into the face or tormentor in a Manhattan bar fight. He professed to be an investment advisor to Trump, and uh, he also got into trouble with the law for a uh, a stock scam involving some mafia folks, allegedly. So this is a very colorful character, uh, Felix Sater is. He's he lives he's a Ukrainian American, yeah. and uh, so Artemenko goes to him. Sater puts him in touch with Cohen. We have this peace plan, and what Cohen does after they sit around one morning, right after the inauguration, they're having a liquid breakfast at a hotel in the Washington area. And they all agree that they should take this plan directly to the White House. Cohen gets up, he heads over to the White House, and he drops it on the desk of Michael Flynn, who is Trump's national security advisor. Before Flynn can act on this plan, Flynn has to resign just a couple of days later because he has been caught out lying about discussions he had had with the Russian ambassador in Washington about, of all things, uh, the sanctions issue. So Flynn is gone, Artemenko and Cohen lose their contact in the White House, Uh, certainly Cohen is still able to bring this forward to Trump, but in any event, this this plan is in limbo, and then suddenly the New York Times uh, publicizes it, and it basically knocks the stays out from under the plan, and the plan quickly dies. That's bad news to a lot of people, the plan, this whole effort was underwritten by a guy named Victor Vesselberg, a Russian oligarch whose own uh, assets were affected by the sanctions that had been levied against Russian actors. So the plan goes by the wayside. Now, why Why is this? Well, if it went by the wayside, why is it important? It's important because it means that everybody in the Trump administration, particularly since this was all over the New York Times, knew that there was a move afoot with Russian backing with Russian backing, folks, because that's what the New York Times said in its story in February 2017, it was in play. So, And this is important to note, because later, 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 way down the road, Trump and his folks would say, oh, we never knew that we were being approached about setting a peace plan up with Putin. Bullshit. <laughs> Pardon me, but that's that, that's, that's what, what it is. is. <laughs> Because Cohen and all these guys, these crazy guys, basically, you know, Forrest Gump meets Mr. Bumble, that's what these guys were. They were clowns. Mm -hmm. But it brought to the public eye that there was something weird going on here right after Trump took office. And that was an effort to get him aboard a peace plan for Ukraine that would involve his collusion, his working with Putin to impose the peace plan on Ukraine. Keep that in mind. That's very important understanding why all of this is key and why it remains key. It tells us one thing for sure, and that is that, that the Trump people, the insiders, Trump himself, knew about this plan. And uh, I will argue later they knew about it because it was what they were supposed to deliver for Putin in exchange for his help with the election. Okay, that's the first plan. The much more important plan I call the Manafort plan because it involved Paul Manafort, initially the convention director for the Trump campaign, then the Trump campaign manager, and uh, he remained a Trump insider right to the very end. you recall he's, he he did some time in prison, he got a Trump pardon, and so forth. We'll come, to, come back to that. But he is the other major promoter of a Russian-supported peace plan for Ukraine. But just to confuse everybody, he didn't write it. He didn't write it, folks. The Mueller investigators, Mueller and the Senate Intelligence Committee, both did their own investigations of the Trump-Russia scandal. And so what I'm telling you about this new plan, this Manafort plan, comes from their findings. And if you disbelieve me, friends, you can go and look at the Mueller and the Senate Intelligence Committee report. Mueller revealed his report or publicized it in 2019. The Senate Intelligence Committee report uh, sort of slipped into public view without much fanfare Sadly, in 2020, there was too much going on. There were many distractions. It is a key report. Anybody, any of your listeners who are interested in spy work and intelligence and whatever, look at this report. It tells us one really important thing about the Manafort plan, that it was written by a Russian operative. A Russian operative. It was written by someone, his buddy of his, who had worked with him in Ukraine beginning in 2004. His buddy, the Russian operative, the Senate Intelligence Committee, says he is a Russian intelligence operative. He is probably connected and was probably connected with the GRU unit, which which in infiltrated the Clinton campaign computers. This is not a minor, minor player, folks. This is Ace, a master spy working for Putin. And he's Paul Manafort's business partner in Ukraine and remains tight with him, helping him push this plan right through to the end. And it was Konstantin Kalimnik who wrote the Manafort peace plan. Let's pause, think about this. It means that one of Putin's top operatives wrote this second peace plan. Wrote it himself. And we'll learn, as we discuss this, he didn't write it one time. He wrote it three or four times, every version updating it. And if you read the Senate Intelligence Committee report, go to page 123, you'll find the latest version of it in its entirety, the thing that Kalemnik wrote. So this is a spy story. In its essence, this is a brilliant Russian intelligence operation. Okay, what was this plan about? Basically, it envisioned the creation of an enclave in eastern Ukraine, just what we're seeing develop right now, and the establishment as a frontman there of a pro-Putin Ukrainian. And the guy that Kalimnik proposed and worked with to make this plan come alive was Viktor Yanukovych. Okay, okay, listener, I know, I know, you're becoming confused, all these strange names, and whatever. Viktor Yanukovych, again, was elected president of Ukraine in 2010. He was elected president of Ukraine in 2010 by Paul Manafort Mm. and Konstantin Kalemnik. They were his principal strategic advisors. They were working for and here's the spy angle again a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska. Oleg Deripaska, folks, is identified by the Senate Intelligence Committee as a proxy for Russian intelligence. Big words. What this really means is it not only was Kalimnik, who wrote this scheme, a Russian operative, so was his boss, the guy to whom he and Manafort were answering. And what was Deripaska specialist in? cyber intrusion operations and dirty leaks operations he'd used them throughout eastern europe he used them in in places in africa on putin's behalf the very kinds of operations that swayed the 2016 election so picture this just think about this russia i gotta hand it to putin and his and his intelligence people this was brilliant stuff They were slowly but surely recognizing opportunities, looking at candidates, looking at people that they could work with and manipulate, and they began homing in on Donald Trump. And working through two people totally uh, beholden, well, one person, two people totally beholden to Putin, Deripaska, uh, Konstantin Kalemnik, and fellow traveler, Paul Manafort. Fellow traveler because he was the business partner of Konstantin Kalemnik and the two guys put Yanukovych in power in 2010. Yanukovych ran up against uh, the Western sentiment, pro-Western sentiment in Ukraine. He made the mistake in, in uh, late 2013 of siding in favor of Putin's. Uh, Putin had set up what was basically a counterfoil to the European Union. And uh, Yanukovych said, I don't want to join the European Union, no, although all my fellow Ukrainians, my subjects do. I want to join what Putin has to offer. That set off the Euromaidan revolution of 2014. It helped spark it. And the revolution drove um, Yanukovych from power. And he didn't, wasn't, But this is a really weird guy. He, when he became president of Ukraine, he set up a zoo in the Palace Grounds in <laughs> Kiev. Anyway, and he was a he was the thug Paul Manafort taught him how to comb his hair, how to mm. speak, uh, be uh, telegenic and so forth. That's how he got him elected in 2010 Ian Kalimnik. But he, he, when he when Yanukovych turned against the western sentiment in Ukraine, he got booted out of power. This pissed off Putin a lot. And what did he do, folks? He seized the Crimea basically a few weeks later. This his influence, his, his operative inside Ukraine, as president of Ukraine. Yanukovych was gone. So he had to do something to keep his hand in the game. So he seizes Crimea. He begins stoking the separatist elements in Donbass. Remember, this is that pro, uh, Russian-speaking pro-Putin area in the eastern part of Ukraine. So that's what that's sort of the backdrop to this peace plan that Manafort and Kalimnik are putting together. It's mm-hmm. nothing to do with the Cohen plan. Mm-hmm. This is a separate one. And what they do is propose in their plan to restore Yanukovych, this guy who's now living as an exile in Moscow, to power in what would be an autonomous region in eastern Ukraine. Oh, what is that? It's exactly what Putin's trying to create Mm. now, running from uh, Kharkiv down through Donbass, Mariupol down through the Crimea Peninsula. In other words, this this was to be Putin's foothold in Ukraine, and Yanukovych was to be his front man and to be his representative there. Uh, So if you sort of keep all these pieces in place – uh, and in mind, you can stay with us. But even if you don't, here's what happened. In, during the campaign, uh, the Trump campaign 2016, or even before it, several things happened, and it's, it'll be of interest to some aficionados, but this is how Ukraine and this plan of Manafort's came and Kalimnik's came to the fore. Uh, the first extant writing we know of by Kalimnik that deals with the plan dates back to May 2015. May 2015, Kalimnik writes an email to the deputy political counselor of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, and he proposes that something be done to bring down the the heat in eastern Ukraine in the separatist regions. And he suggests that Yanukovych or that it's certainly a political movement be set up there that will that will appease Putin and that this is something that U.S. policy should get behind. So he surfaces this a month later in July in July at a GOP rally in Las Vegas a young, a very attractive redhead. She's an exchange student from Siberia, so she says. Her name is Maria Bettina, and she's actually the girlfriend of a major Republican operative by this point. And she later admitted to being a full Russian spy, by the way, folks. But she's in this, this rally. She stands up in the audience, and she asks the dark horse at the podium what his attitude is towards sanctions against Russia because of Ukraine. The dark horse, one Donald Trump, who is not yet considered an active or a viable candidate, says, I'd get rid of the sanctions. I'd get rid of them. Wow. What does that mean? If you're Kalemnik and you're Paul Manafort, that's an invitation to dance, baby. That's a signal that this guy, Donald Trump, would be receptive to appeasing Putin. Okay? What happens next, folks, is history. Manafort joins the Trump campaign as convention manager, weasels his way in. We know from emails collected by Mueller that uh, he's in touch constantly with Kalimnik, and he talks about how to please Deripaska by handing over polling data. And in July of 2015, he manages to persuade the platform committee for the Republican convention to eliminate a platform, a proposed platform plank that would have called for lethal aid, U.S. aid to Ukraine, out of nowhere. And This is, you know, this is the Law and Order Party, this is the uh, Strong Against uh, uh, Bad Guys Party, the Republican Party, and here they are eliminating the idea of giving lethal aid to Ukraine. Where the hell did that come from? It's part of this Russian scheme to bring Trump in line with Putin's agenda. Okay, now what happens next? What happens next is in August of 2016, right after Trump has said publicly, hey, uh, if Mr. Putin, if you can find Hillary Clinton's emails, missing yeah. emails, go for it. Right after that, August 2nd, 2016, Kalimnik comes to New York. Meets with Manafort, who's tight with the campaign, meets with him in a cigar bar in New York. And what do they discuss? Most importantly, they discuss the peace plan. But the peace plan has evolved in Kalimnik's mind. This, when he discusses it with, with Manafort at this meeting, he says, what we want to do and have Trump support is the setting up of an autonomous region, not just a movement in eastern Ukraine, but an autonomous region under Yanukovych. So the plan is fully articulated in August in the midst of the Trump campaign by its author speaking to the central a central player in the campaign, Paul Manafort. Manafort is totally on board. Well, Shortly after this, a little hitch happens. Manafort's dirty money activities in Ukraine, when he and Kaliminik were working there and helping Yanukovych and others promote pro-Russian interest in Ukraine, that becomes public, and and good old Manafort has to resign from the campaign. Okay? And you would think, well, that does it for the, the peace plan, this idea to align Trump behind... Uh, Putin, etc., etc. It doesn't, because Kalimnik doesn't give up. And once, once Trump is elected, Kalimnik then contacts Manafort again on December 8, 2016. This is the transition period. Trump is on his way to taking the, the oath, and he's lining up his policies. And Kalimnik says to Manafort, hey, Remember our peace plan. He said, the only thing you need to do is to get Trump to do these following things to set this peace plan in motion. Get him to wink. That's literally the term that Kalemnik uses. Get him to wink that he's okay with this peace plan. Number two, get him to appoint you, Mr. Manafort, as your special emissary on Ukraine. You then, once that happens, you fly off and meet with Yanukovych. Yanukovych is sitting in Moscow, ready to talk to you about this plan. And we'll have a peace plan for Ukraine right after Trump takes office, within a few months. Everything is set up. The only thing it requires to set the whole machinery going is a, a indication from Trump that he's in board, on board. So, I want to pause a second. With all these details, here's what's important. The plan, as envisioned by Manafort, involved the complete cooperation of Trump. It was designed to make him Putin's accomplishment in setting up this plan. Now, for reasons that are unclear, and I suspect it has to do with the heat that that Trump was receiving, the now president-elect was receiving from Jim Mm -hmm. Comey and the FBI, but in any event... Nothing happened with the plan. Uh, Trump didn't appoint Manafort his special emissary. He didn't send him, send him to uh, send him to Russia to talk with Yanukovych. It just sort of suddenly died, yeah. and I suspect it's because one, it was too hot to handle. It was a hot potato, and it would bring more suspicion on Trump, and, and I think Trump and his advisers reckon that. And number two, Trump was just he was out of his. League. He, he wasn't prepared to be president. He didn't know how to arrange policy, the most complicated policy issues. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, and so he, he didn't carry this plan forward, but it didn't die. It didn't die. We know from the Mueller and the Senate Intelligence Committee investigations of Trump Russia that Manafort and Kalemnik continued to discuss this peace plan seriously. In 2017, several times in 2017, and very seriously, at the beginning of 2018. And in 2018, what happened was that Kalemnik provided a full draft of the most recent version of the peace plan. And if you want to read it, it's the one that that is published in the Senate Intelligence Committee report on page 123. Mm-hmm. This peace plan, so-called peace plan, centered on the eastern section of Ukraine would have turned that area into an autonomous region they call it that it would have had Trump and Putin collaborating to install Yanukovych and to force the present president of Ukraine Petro Poroshenko into accepting this in other words it was it was a total squeeze job to for it, getting Putin and Trump together to force this peace plan on Poroshenko and Ukraine. Now, the timing of this plan and the timing, well, but one other thing that happened. This is why it, it, it's so, this plan is so tightly connected to Trump, folks. But one of the things that happened as, as Manafort and Kalemnik were finalizing this, this most updated version in February of 2018, they went to pumps Trump's uh, own pollster. Tony Fabrizio, whom actually Manafort had brought to the campaign, he was he was the guy that did all the the uh, polling work for Trump, and uh, whose polling data went to the Russians uh, earlier during the campaign itself. But in any case, very important guy, and they asked Fab- Fabrizio to draw up a a public opinion poll to be conducted inside Ukraine to determine whether or not the Ukrainian people would accept the return of Yanukovych to a position of power, that is, as leader of the satrap in eastern Ukraine. And yeah, yeah. so it was a fully formed plan. And by the way, it would be what Putin might well embrace in the current context. This autonomous region headed by his own puppet and getting the United States and Russia together to force it down the throats of the Ukrainian people. That's what this plan envisioned. Now, it it died. It died for some very interesting reasons. Number one, uh, time was running out for the plan. This was early 2018. The presidential elections were to be held in Ukraine within a year. Pro-Western sentiment is very high in Ukraine. And so as you get closer to the election, it's less likely that any viable candidate would embrace this this peace plan, which was so pro-Putin as to be shameful. So it was very important to sort of get it on the table in early 2018. Number two, the second thing that was happening is that, that Manafort, was under heat from investigators. And so it's very likely, very possible, he would be out of commission very soon. Uh, And he was under investigation intensely by Mueller's people. He was indicted in October of 2017, right before this peace plan was finalized. And he was indicted for money laundering, for failing to register as a foreign agent. Mm -hmm. A very serious indictment. And much of the information being used against him was coming from Ukraine, an investigation that was being conducted in Ukraine into Manafort's past activities there. So it looks like Manafort is in real trouble and won't be in a position very soon to move the peace plan forward. But it's also possible and Trump's people are reckoning with this, that if Manafort is brought under questioning, severe questioning, he knows where all the bodies are buried in the Trump-Russia scandal. He'll begin talking. And so Trump, and this was finally deduced by reporters and others, what Trump did was to try to shut the investigation down by shutting down the information flow from Ukraine. Where investigation into Manafort's activities were ongoing. And he succeeds in doing so by manipulating an arms deal. And uh, I know everybody in the audience is saying, Oh my God, no, what's uh, too much detail? But basically he, what Trump da- does is to hold up the delivery of javelin missiles that Ukraine desperately needs to wage war against the separatists in the East, in the very area that, uh, Putin wants to make turn into an enclave. And what happens is the Pentagon approves the sale in December, but the javelins don't arrive until the following May. They're slow-walked in the meantime. The prosecutor general for the Ukrainian government, Yuri Lutsenko, shuts down all information flow to the Mueller investigators. All information about Manafort's dirty dealings. Information that the Mueller investigation needs to complete its case against Manafort. And so, postulate was the shutdown or the slow walking of the javelin sale done to extort the Ukrainian government, President Poroshenko, into shutting down that investigation. And most Ukrainian reformers believe that's exactly what happened. Mueller never closed that loop, but it looks like extortion was in the air. Why is this important? Because it's a, it's a test run for what what later happened with Zelensky. But suffice it to say that the investigation of Manafort begins to slow down. And that's not all. Not only does the Ukrainian investigative team under Lysenko shut down the information flow to Mueller and his his team. They let Kalemnik escape Ukraine, escape to Russia. So, the one major witness against Manafort disappears. Okay, Manafort's troubles aren't over. In June, I believe it was 2018, this is after that plan has been finalized and sitting on the table, in June of 2018, a grand jury indicts Manafort and Kalemnik for jury tampering and obstruction of justice. So the heat against Manafort and Kalemnik is intensifying. In August, Manafort is convicted of money laundering, and there are other charges in the wings. So the chances are he's going to be under the gun and squeezed to reveal everything he knows about Trump-Russia, the peace plan, you name it. And if that happens, folks, the Trump-Russia investigations would have ended a different way. We would have had evidence of collusion between Trump and Putin with Ukraine as the bargaining chip. Suffice it to say, this is where we are in the fall of 2018. Manafort is under terrific pressure. He's under, he's been convicted. He's got more charges against him, and he decides to plea bargain with Mueller's investigators, and he decides to plea bargain for leniency, and he promises to tell the truth about everything. And guess what the investigators talk to him first about? The peace plan. Because one of the investigators, Andrew Weissman, has realized that this is the key to the kingdom. The peace plan is the quid pro quo in his mind, for collusion between Trump and Russia and Putin in the 2016 election. It is, but put it simply, implementing the peace plan, the pro-Putin peace plan, the selling out of Ukraine, was the way Trump was expected to repay Putin for helping to wreck Hillary Clinton's chances. A little complicated. You have to, you know, be dexterous in your on your feet to stay with this. Mm-hmm. And what happens when the investigators begin questioning Manafort about it? Manafort doesn't understand that they've already gotten the emails that he and Kalimnik exchanged. So when they begin questioning, and this is Weissman and others on the Mueller team, begin questioning Manafort about it, he just lies to a fair they will. And they catch him out on the lies. And they catch him... so. The plea deal goes down the tubes. They where, they withdraw it. They're not going to give him a, a stay-out-of-jail card, free stay-out-of-jail stay card. He's in deep trouble. It's because of the peace plan, because they know much more about it than he thinks they know. And so, strangely enough, the peace plan plays all through the Trump-Russia investigation, particularly this Manafort plan. But... In any event, big question, Mm. what did Trump himself know about this peace plan? Mm. Because you can't close the loop. You can't make him party to collusion about involving something he knows nothing about. When Mueller asked Trump in writing, because Trump wouldn't sit still for uh, cross-examination, but when he he asked Trump in writing, did he know about the peace plan? Did he hear about it from Mm. Manafort? Mm. Trump says, never heard of it. Mm. Never heard anything like this. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And Mueller himself says in his investigative report that he could not establish that Trump ever heard of the peace plan. Now, this when I read this, it drove me batshit because first of all, as I said before, the Cohen plan was all over the newspapers in 2017. Mm. Furthermore, Mm. Kalimnik had actually given public interviews about the Manafort peace plan, he had given an interview to Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, in early 2017, folks. And Radio Liberty and Radio for Europe are U.S. government, semi-official U.S. government organs. So if somebody's giving an interview on a U.S. government-supported propaganda operation, you can bet the U.S. government is paying attention. The other agencies are paying attention. And so it's almost incomprehensible that Trump didn't hear, learn, didn't see in the president's daily brief something about remarks by a guy named Kalimnik who works with Manafort. By the way, the Radio Free Europe article was titled, Who is Paul Manafort's Man in Kiev?" The man is Kalimnik. So it sets the whole bloody thing out. And there's no way, in my mind, that the White House and Trump didn't hear about it. But here's something even more sexy. Trump actually has admitted recently that he knew something about the peace plan. In February of this year, Trump was speaking at a friendly CPAC meeting, a conservative political action committee Meeting in the United States, somebody asked him about Putin and the peace plan and so on. And he said, Well, you know, I talked with Putin a lot and he did have a real affinity. This is what he said. This is what Trump said about Putin. He had a real affinity for Ukraine, but I told him, it never happen, better not happen. That is explicitly what Trump says he told Putin. Now, why is that important? Well, we know that Trump had about 16 personal conversations with Putin, most of them on the telephone, but there were some face-to-face meetings, including Helsinki 2018. Now, aficionados of the Trump scandal and whatever will know that Helsinki was a real high-water mark in Trump's love affair with Putin. Remember, he got up at a press conference in Helsinki and he said that he believed Putin's intelligence people over his own intelligence people with respect to whether there'd been collusion. He he slimed U.S. intelligence. He sat there with, and Putin was right with him and Putin smirking and so forth. So, in other words, it was a great show of solidarity with Putin against U.S. intelligence and everybody associated with it. Well... We know that he met with Putin secretly at that meeting. I think that there's a very good chance that's when they discussed the peace plan. Remember, it had just been finalized by Manafort and Kalemnik. They had put together the final version of it just a few months before, and so... Putin and Trump both had it in their hands. They had the finalized plan. So let's assume in this conversation between them, Putin says something to the effect, what are you going to do about the peace plan? Trump says to him, better not do it. Okay? Why would he say that? Because you talk about being under heat right now from those investigators and from Senate investigators, it's, it's right now. Uh, the, the the Mueller plan is being hotly debated in public. Trump is facing all sorts of questions about collusion. And I think that it's reasonable, suppose, that he had decided by this point that there was no way he could side with Putin in favor of the peace plan such as Manafort and Kalimnik had put together. It was just too hot to handle. But he has to give Putin a consolation prize. So when he appears with Putin at this press conference in Helsinki, he sings Putin's praises. He slimes U.S. intelligence. It was a consolation prize, I believe, for the president's inability to deliver Ukraine to the Russians through this peace plan. But it's not over. It's not over. Because what happens is that Trump has already demonstrated he's willing to use aid to Ukraine or the withholding of aid. In the first instance, mm-hmm. the javelins, mm. which had that whole scandal had come to fruition just before the Helsinki meeting. He's already demonstrated he'll play fast and loose with USA to re- Ukraine in order to garner or to develop leverage against Ukraine and in Putin's favor. In other words, to weaken uh, Ukraine in its ability to fend off Russian incursions. And after Helsinki... There is the election in Ukraine, Poroshenko, whom uh, Trump and Giuliani have, have been sucking up to. He gets defeated. He gets defeated by a former actor in a comedy show named Zelensky, right? And lo and behold, Zelensky wins big time in the second round of voting, beats the crap out of Poroshenko. And what does that do to Trump and Putin? It basically sets Trump back to point one he's got to do the, he's got to do something to weaken zelensky in his dealings with putin and there was the famous call in july of 2019 in which he basically put this puts the squeeze on zelensky saying you want another weapons delivery from the united states i need a favor he doesn't say a favor or two but he does and everybody the, the popular interpretation of this call this perfect call, as Trump called it, described it, is that it was designed to, the pressure that that Trump was exerting was designed to persuade uh, Zelensky to go after Joe Biden, which would help Trump in his campaign, and to find somebody, anybody but Russia to blame for the election tampering in 2016. The real reason he did it, I believe, that he applied this pressure to Zelensky in threatening to withhold aid was he was trying to help Putin and make good on his debt to Putin for what Putin had done for him in 2016. Didn't work. Uh, an anonymous CIA whistleblower uh, exposed what had taken place in the call and soon after the weapons, the new weapons delivery went to Ukraine. But Alexander Vinman, who handled the Ukraine portfolio for the National Security Council, has since said that he thinks that Trump's sleaze, his manipulation of aid to Ukraine, is what set the stage for the Russian invasion of Ukraine this year. That it so diminished U.S. credibility, it, it so... Diminished Zelensky's expectations of getting US aid. It delayed US efforts and Biden's efforts to prepare for an invasion and thus contributed, so says Venman, to setting Ukraine up for this hit. So the way of looking at all of this through the prism of these peace plans gives you a broader understanding, not only of how Of what was really at stake through the Trump-Russia scandal, but it helps us understand why the move of Russian military operations to the East as sort of a fallback option for Putin is so important. It's not haphazard. It is an extension of a thinking of a scenario that originated in these two peace plans. And is designed, I think, to set the stage if in place of outright victory, which now seems impossible for Putin. Mm. And certainly outright victory is not in the cards for Zelensky, because this would go on and on and on. The Russians are able to continue to feed manpower and material into the Eastern, Eastern border regions. But if we're looking for a way of getting the two sides at least talking, it's useful to think of these peace plans, and because they were approved by Putin, Kalimnik wrote the last one uh, under Putin's direction, and so these are political terms, the idea of setting up an autonomous region there. though These are terms that Putin might at least consider. Zelensky wouldn't. Zelensky said he wouldn't accede to any peace plan that surrendered territory to Russia, but actually this peace plan is a way of masking that, of sort mm. of papering mm. over that so that each side saves face, because essentially it wouldn't cede territory, it would basically make this enclave in eastern Ukraine into a allegedly an autonomous region. Obviously, it would be a region where Russia would have the upper hand and would help Putin. But in any event, that's sort of the very complicated background to all of this. But again, for your aficionados of spydom and those in your audience, this is fabulous. This should, this should uh, occupy your attention because it's Russia intelligence doing its damnedest to work Putin's wiles. It involves U.S. intelligence ferreting out what's going on. And I think historians will. When they're able to step back from the heat of the Trump-Russia scandal and what's going on in in Ukraine now, they will see this and the peace plans as pivotal elements in where we are today and also examples of how both intelligence operations in Russia and the United States operate.
2: Mm -hmm. One interesting thought I had, just as an observer, it kind of felt like since the sort of Snowden revelations, Snowden's defection, uh, or I don't know, Snowden's odyssey, I don't know what you want to call it. It felt like Russian intelligence has sort of really had an upper hand over the West for a very long time. And it kind of feels like now with the current war in Ukraine, it sort of seems to be going into decline um, do you have any thoughts on the effectiveness of Russian intelligence because what you've just described especially with the Trump campaign honestly is some of the best intelligence work that's been in play in in modern history if not history.
1: Well, Snowden was certainly not an anomaly. We had Aldrich Ames, we had the Cambridge crew in British intelligence. Mm-hmm. And British intelligence is always—I mean, the Five Eyes, U.S. and British intelligence, New Zealand, Australia, etc.—they're um, all tight as ticks. And I think that, I think that, U.S. intelligence has been penetrated at various times in very important ways. Uh, so I don't think that Snowden is uh, an exception that proves some rule. I think he simply is more of the same. And I, I. Do not view Snowden as a whistleblower. Uh, I think that he was, I think he was bought and sold by Russia in so many different ways. He may not have been entirely aware of how he was being manipulated. And I think the same goes for WikiLeaks and its various uh, appendages. Mm. Whether or not they totally understood what was happening, Russia really was. the puppeteer behind much of what mm. it was doing. Mm. So, yeah, the Russians have done a damn good job of penetrating Western intelligence. Certainly, what they did in the in the the Trump Clinton campaign was just mind blowing. Uh, I think there's no question that the way they placed leaked information out of the Clinton computers helped sway opinion public opinion in trump's favor in the swing states and and tony fabrizio who was trump's pollster at the time and remained so after he became president helped identify some of the swing states and so did manafort mm,
0: so mm. russian
1: intelligence did a brilliant job of of manipulating fishers in u.s body politic if you will it sounds a little off color but they did to to wreak havoc and. With the election, and let's also examine a possibility here, or at least what I think is an obvious fact: they had in Trump a tightly managed Manchurian candidate. Um, Now, many many Republicans would bridle at that. Certainly, it wasn't proven by the Mueller investigation. I think it was much more closely demonstrated by the Senate Intelligence Committee report. But Manafort was basically operating at Trump's elbow. And when Trump became president, Putin had every reason to believe that he had somebody under certainly his sway, either through blackmail, through the influence of the people operating close to him like, like Manafort that he had somebody he could count on doing what he wanted done. And I think that's why Putin and his operatives had no qualms about uh, fiddling around with this peace plan and trying to get Trump enlisted in supporting it, uh, which would have been so beneficial to Putin. So they did a fantastic job. Now, what about U.S. intelligence? U.S. intelligence during the Trump campaign had an operative, it has now been revealed, Inside the Kremlin, and they actually had to withdraw him for fear that Trump would say something because Trump was being briefed as a candidate on what we knew about Russian meddling. And as of late April 2016, he had received the entire intelligence briefing. And there had been debate in the U.S. intelligence community as to whether or not to give him all of the information that a candidate would have, would deserve to have because of his questionable. Uh, relationship with the Russians. And so U.S. intelligence knew that Trump was a possible threat, leak, uh, agent of influence of Russian. What do you do about that? Well, one thing that U.S. intelligence did and the Obama administration did was to go to um, uh, Senator McConnell and, and say to him, hey, help us advertise that the Russians have influenced or somehow are influencing this election. And the, the Republican leadership said nothing doing. So they, though U.S. intelligence was doing what it could, Obama's people, to put the stops to Russian influence peddling within the campaign, within the election period, the Republicans pushed back. And Deripaska, our old friend Oleg Deripaska, he he had invested heavily in Kentucky, <laughs> where McConnell is his base. So, uh, they the Russians had covered a number of a number of corners. They had set this up very well, uh, but U.S. intelligence was one step ahead of them. And I'm also one of the people who believe that the Steele dossier was not the abomination that Republicans ultimately made it out to be. It was a piece of raw intelligence mm. and. Steele was a very accomplished, is a very accomplished MI6 operative. I think if you go back and read the Steele dossier, it is amazingly prescient and makes very clear that the Russians had their hooks in Trump. And I don't think based on, again, what the Senate Intelligence Committee report uh, came out with, you have, there's much dispute of that again. Senate Intelligence Committee report said that Konstantin Kalimnik, working buddy, bosom buddy, to Manafort, and who had weaseled his way into the Trump campaign and into the Trump administration to the point of being able constantly to put forward a peace plan that would benefit Putin, he was a fully uh, accredited Russian intelligence operative. So, good God, Russian intelligence was everywhere, all over the Trump first campaign and then the administration in so many ways. It doesn't mean that Trump was a fully recruited spy. He was a useful fool, or he was what I believe. Um, I think that he, he knew what he owed Putin for Putin's help with the campaign, and he was doing everything he could to pay Putin back. First, he was considering giving him... Eastern Ukraine couldn't do it, it's too politically fraught and ultimately wound up giving Putin a consolation prize by weakening U.S. aid flow, by manipulating the U.S. aid flow to Ukraine. So he delivered at least on some of Putin's expectations. And what else, if you're an intelligence operative, what else could you want? Well, the irony is that Putin now, because of his Inability to achieve instant success in Ukraine is dismantling <laughs> the FSB. It seems he sidelined its chief who failed to uh, tell him that he couldn't win immediately in Ukraine. And by the way, Western intelligence has been a very, done a very good job, particularly British intelligence of sowing doubts in Putin's mm-hmm. brain about uh, just how far he can trust his own intelligence people. Psy war stuff has been brilliant. So, again, if you're an aficionado of Spidem, the spy world, the Ukraine business, the Trump-Russia scandal, it is a treasure trove of fascinating insights, incidents, and developments.
2: Indeed. One random question, you semi-answered, if Putin has a moment of kind of quiet reflection, I don't know how much he does this, but um, do you think he would look back on uh, Trump, And I, and I, you know, I'm fully, I personally am... Uh, I do believe that Trump was manipulated by Putin and was aided by Putin to get elected, just in case there's any doubt to where I come from on that. Do you think Putin will look back on all this and think that he had a good return on investment with Trump?
1: Well, <laughs> absolutely, totally before this uh, this uh, Ukraine uh, special operations. Good Christ, uh, he, he Trump sowed absolute chaos in the Western alliance chaos and putin managed to snatch, snatch <laughs> defeat from the jaws of victory by invading ukraine and thus uniting the western alliance yes. so everything that trump had basically helped putin achieve which is chaos in the western alliance everything everybody <laughs> that's that's been rolled back i mean the idea that finland and sweden may join nato I'm sure that the objections of the Turks will be overcome soon, but uh, that's phenomenal. And so Putin, he, he he tried too much. Look, if Putin had stayed with his peace plan and, and mounted, instead of mounting an invasion, tried to install an autonomous region in eastern Ukraine and brought Yanukovych in to front it, it would have been a different... He wouldn't be accused of all of the... Well, certainly he wouldn't have been reduced to a very bad military campaign. And he might have been in a much better position to to yank concessions out of the West. And certainly it wouldn't have unified the Western alliance the way an outright invasion did. So Putin screwed himself. I mean, he really did. And United States politics right now are so horribly polarized... And the obscenity of the January 6th investiture of the the Capitol is uh, horrible. And what the Republicans are doing to protect their involvement or to keep it secret in that is awful. So I really fear for the Republic in the United States. But I think Biden deserves immense credit for helping Zelensky unite the Western alliance behind Zelensky. It's just been amazing. And Zelensky will go down in history, I think, as uh, one of the most pivotal figures in recent history. And he shames us all with his bravery and his genius. For being able to strike just the right chord, in public opinion. Yeah.
2: yeah, he's done an amazing job. So Kissinger was speaking the other day, and he said that the Ukraine needs to accept it has to give up territory to kind of bring about peace. So does this does this sort of plan that Putin have, does it hold water now? What do you think the kind of future holds for this conflict in Ukraine?
1: Well, I was fascinated when, uh, when Kissinger, speaking at Davos, uh, the economic mm. conference recently, said that uh, that Zelensky was going to have to bend, the West most particularly, was going to have to bend and make some kind of accommodation with Putin. Um, and I think that if you're looking for a political off ramp, that these peace plans that we've been discussing, particularly this idea of setting up a, an autonomous region in the East, is a starting point. Uh, Zelensky has said that he would never accede to giving up territory to Russia. But if you sort of cloaked a give up or a surrender of territory in terms of calling it an autonomous region, if you would, maybe there's room for manipulation or some kind of deal. I, I do not like Henry Kissinger. I think his attitude is uh, it's a throwback to the 19th century <laughs> before. Uh, it obviously owes a lot to Metternich, balance of power, and so forth, and look where it's gotten us. It hasn't gotten us where we should be this day and time. It didn't at one particular point. There's another theory, um, and by the way, Kissinger's notion, the idea that you give up something in order to get something from Putin, assumes that Putin is a rational player, that he would respond to that. I'm not sure that's a given uh, at all. And Ann Applebaum, who's a magnificent scholar, and expert on autocracies in history and most recent history, has argued that Putin is not a rational player, and consequently giving up stuff to him is not going to get any concessions out of him. She sort of believes he's on a messianic crusade to reestablish all Mother Russia and all of its permutations, including full embrace of the Ukrainian territories. And so she she doesn't look very happily towards negotiations such as, as Kissinger envisions. And I think it's very important to and really think about both perspectives. Is this something that would reasonably, is, a, is there a deal that we could put to Putin that he would accept? I think there's a good argument to be made that Applebaum is right that, uh, that Putin is not emotionally capable of making concessions but I think if you put out a sort of balanced or if not balanced but a, a a proposal like say the Manafort proposal that would at least give Russia something that that might embolden some of these oligarchs some of these people who are suddenly expressing concerns about Putin a, a face-saving way of coalescing against him so that they wouldn't appear to be, Bound uh, and and determined to humiliate Mother Russia, they would be in effect working towards a plan that could make, uh, that should give Mother Russia some face in all of this. So the peace plans, if you begin circulating and beginning, begin to make them known, might appeal to some people. And incidentally, one oligarch who's spoken out against Putin is Olav. Deripaska, the father of the manafort constantine kalemnik peace plan. I was stunned. He said, you know, we've got too much chaos and so on. I think that U.S. intelligence and particularly British intelligence, which I think has co-opted a number of the oligarchs, by the way, and I know I have no inside information to, Mm. to verify that, but I think they're very British intelligence, MI6 is very tight particularly with the oligarchs who have assets in Britain and whose assets have been left alone. And I think probably British intelligence has gotten something for that. And British intelligence is telling us a lot about unease among uh, the Russian oligarchs around and about and some of the extraordinary anti Putin's statements that are being voiced uh, uh, again, again, well, even among people who have been to the, this moment, his lackeys and spokespeople, mm-hmm. and Tarepaska mm-hmm. speaking out against him—amazing. Um, so, uh, I think that the peace plan idea might be uh, useful in swinging some of these oligarchs into line against. Against Putin, I, I think Applebaum is right that Putin himself is emotionally, psychologically, incapable of thinking of anything except uh, total victory. Now, uh, he just he would he would be totally discredited with any kind of compromise. Mm.
2: Mm. What do you think the future holds for Putin? There's obviously all sorts of interesting reports about his health. I I must admit I don't know quite what to believe with regards to that but he doesn't look quite the the uh, bare-chested horse-bound man that we come to know and love
1: <laughs> well some of the photographs and and particularly video show his hands shaking his unsteady of mm. gait and uh, there's great been great speculation again coming out of british intelligence that he has parkinson's disease that he may have uh, some kind of blood ca- cancer um and i think I mean, first of all, it's mind-fake stuff. Uh, It could be. It could be just invented to create doubt that would encourage some of the oligarchs to move against him, some of the anti-Putin people. But, boy, you look at some of those photographs, and particularly that one when he's sitting at the table, he's talking to some of his commanders at that very long table, and he's gripping the side of the table. And this is video. And he's gripping it. And if you're, if you believe he's got Parkinson's, that that the way he's handling, holding that uh, the edge of the table looks like he's trying to steady his hand so it wouldn't shake in public. So all of this, I mean, if you're an intelligence analyst at this point in Britain, the United States, you're having the best time of your life because you've got all these indicators. And I, I guarantee you, as a former CIA analyst, that the one of the major topics right now is just how stable this guy is and just what we can do to m- encourage his putative opponents, the slowly emerging anti-Putin faction to move against him. And how you play the indicators of his ill health to that purpose, uh, and how you play the Idea of peace in Ukraine, a sort of middle way. How do you use that to, to, to galvanize opinion against Putin? It's very tricky stuff, brilliant stuff. And, and historians in the future will look back and tell us how it all worked itself out. But you can bet that's what's going on now in, in both British and, and, um, U.S. intelligence and no doubt in French intelligence as well. Although I think French intelligence, by the way, we we know this now because French intelligence chief was removed by Macron because uh, uh, he, he the head of French intelligence misled Macron to believing there was a give in uh, Putin's invasion plans. And that was a mistake. Mm. US intelligence, Mm. uh, British intelligence didn't fall for that. Mm.
2: One other more apocalyptic tone, I suppose. How close are we to midnight, do you think, with all this?
1: That's fascinating. And um, those who believe, like Applebaum, that Putin doesn't have control of his emotions or psychology anymore, worry that that could lead to use of tactical nuclear weapons and so forth i read a fascinating piece the other day on how russian nuclear weapons are controlled how the trigger is handled and apparently if putin were to say let's use tac- tactical nuclear weapons it has to get the approval of two or three of his generals and right now putin's generals are not totally on board next to him. They're not behind him. I read something just yesterday that he has create, Putin has created an emergency czar by elevating one of his bodyguards to big advisory status. I think it's called an emergency advisor. So clearly Putin is not feeling in total control of his entourage. And if you believe that he needs at least the approval of two of his entourage to mount nuclear war against the United States or whatever target, then the tensions in his entourage are very significant. And he may not be able be able to convince himself that had he worried to give that order, it would be acted on because the tensions and the disagreements are seeping right up to his doorstep right now. So, I I bring this to the fore because I think it should be considered in uh, any debate over whether or not he might launch nuclear weapons either tactically or strategically. Uh, it requires more approvals than that might be possible in a crisis. Mm. Um, anyway, mm. um, I, what do I know? All I know is I follow this stuff like an intelligence analyst – which means obsessively, my daughter and the rest of my family are sick of me doing this, and so is your audience, I'm sure. So, <laughs> wow. is there anything else you'd like to add
2: before we part ways today? Is there anything else that we haven't talked about?
1: <laughs> no, I th- I think that I've I've done all the damage I possibly can, and maybe one or two people in your audience <laughs> are still awake, Chris. But uh, I I can't tell you how grateful I am that you. Are generous enough to give me the time to yak on like this. It, it, you are, your your podcast is is religiously followed in the United States by many people and many people I know, and you're doing a wonderful job explicating spy world to your listeners.
2: Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you very much. Where can listeners uh, find out more about you and your work, Frank?
1: I have uh, a website called all Lowercase dot com. Where I've published this. Uh, you can also see me on various other sites in the United States Medium. And um, there we are. Uh, and I can I'm I'm working on a piece. I hope to get out soon comparing US evacuation of Vietnam to that in Afghanistan. And by mm. the way, the the Afghanistan evacuation was a masterpiece of death. Uh, diplomacy and planning compared to the precedent we set in Vietnam. So I hope mm. to deal with that soon, because certainly President Biden has taken a lot of heat for the Afghan crisis, and I think his critics don't know what they're talking about. But that's another another show another time.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, come come back on, because we spoke about the evacuation last year, and it'd be good to chat about that again, especially now with a bit of hindsight and stuff. So that'd be You good. bet, you bet. Thank you. Well, look, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.